0: Father, we live in days that you tell us are going to be difficult days. Father, you tell us these days are difficult because uh, the world will be a difficult place in which to live. and the church, Father, um, is light in that darkness, but how the darkness hates the light. And Father, we know that we will bring some wind into the light as you appoint, but many others will, uh, will react in fear and anger, out of conviction. And they will be under the authority of the enemy, and he will use them against you and against your word. You will prevail, but, Father, we may be called upon to experience trial along the way as you allow it, because it's part of the glory that you bring to yourself through the suffering of the saints. And as we consider consider these things and remind ourselves of these things, Father, we know as we read your word tonight that you've been speaking of this from long ago, preparing men and women to to be ready for this time. And, uh, Father, though we may be living in times now that are very safe, or so we think, we know, Father, your word says it won't always be that way. So we do pray, Father, you would use what we learned tonight to prepare us, to, to ensure that we're ready to give a proper defense and to make the proper response to whatever comes our way. Let us learn from what you told Timothy through the words of the Apostle Paul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul's letter is going to remain on the topic of bad teaching or false teaching. But he's also beginning a transition here in chapter 3. And the transition is out of a conversation around Timothy's circumstances to a more general conversation about the circumstances that the church universal will find itself in. And you remember Timothy is a guy that was young. He was contending for the faith in a pagan city. We've talked about him now on on numerous occasions going back to 1 Timothy. And we also said, though, that he was pastoring in a time of growing hostility. The church itself was going through a trial. Nero, the emperor of Rome, had begun a program of persecuting the church following the fire in the city of rome so not only was timothy contending with false teaching in all its forms but now he was fighting his own flesh and its desire to flee persecution so he was being pulled by both directions and because of those challenges paul wrote this letter to timothy to shore up his courage so that he would continue doing what he was called to do as a pastor in that city so as a brief reminder of where we've been in chapter one paul told timothy don't neglect the gift that you've received because god granted it to you for an eternal purpose Don't take it for granted. And Paul pointed to his own example in that chapter of having suffered for the sake of Christ, and he was trying to inspire Timothy to continue the fight, right? And then in the course of chapter 1, he mentioned a few contemporaries at the end of that chapter who had failed to keep up the fight. So it was a way of uh, sort of reminding Timothy, here's what's at stake if you don't do what you're supposed to do. Then in chapter 2, Paul chose to use a series of comparisons to explain the importance of holding to the mission. And this is what we were in the last couple of weeks. You remember Paul compared timothy's christian service to a number of different roles and as you count them in the chapter there's actually seven so he compared timothy to a son to a soldier to an athlete to a farmer to a laborer to a vessel and to a bond servant or slave and his point in that chapter overall was that the life of a servant who's serving the living god involves no less commitment no less sacrifice, no less patience, no less dedication, and for that matter, no less reward, than do any of those other walks of life. If you're going to work hard at being a farmer, if you're willing to sacrifice as a soldier and so on, then why would you think to do any less if you're serving God? In fact, serving God is going to require all the more in every one of those areas to include greater reward for those who are faithful. And so Paul's point was, you should be thinking in similar terms for this mission as you would for others. And finally, as Paul ended chapter 2, he gave Timothy this exhortation, to strive to be a pastor who handles the Word of God properly. That is, make your goal in ministry to handle the Word of God accurately. And as I said in the last lesson when we were here before, that should be the highest and maybe the only goal of every person, every man in pastoral ministry. Do you handle the Word of God accurately? everything else is largely irrelevant when compared to that goal and paul said being an approved workman in that respect would include the responsibility of not being dragged into worldly or empty talk should it come your way pursue holiness paul told timothy in your in your own life and do that as a prerequisite for teaching others about the holiness of god from his word and moreover timothy must avoid getting dragged into those useless and foolish speculations not get caught up in those things. Instead, you ought to correct those who do get caught up in it. All right, now on that final point, that is to correct those who have been caught up in useless speculations of one kind or another, Paul says the goal when you do that confrontation is to avoid being quarrelsome, showing love, showing patience, as you work to bring that other person, that one in opposition, to repentance, if God permits. Those who are consumed by the false teaching, in other words, are not your enemy. They are, in effect, victims. And so the focus of our ministry should be to get them to a point where the Lord may grant them repentance, not to win a debate. It's not the goal. So even though Timothy was to stay out of the mud himself, he was to seek to pull others out of it, if he could. You can't save everyone, though. And there are going to be times when it's best just to leave the fight. And that leads us into chapter 3 today, where Paul is now moving to prove the point regarding false teachers that they should be avoided. And he's going to do it by drawing a comparison to the nature of the days in which we live generally. So let's begin chapter 3. And to do this, I want to reread the final two verses of chapter 2, because that gives us a better context in which to move into this chapter, chapter 3. So I'll start in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, "...with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth." And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, Reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Paul's iconic paragraph on the nature of the last days world. When you read out of the end of 2 like I did, and then into the beginning of 3, it becomes very clear that Paul wasn't unrealistic about the degree of success that Timothy might achieve in trying to convert those who were spreading false teaching. He, in fact, look at his tone. His tone actually sounds very pessimistic, at least to my ear. He says things like, If God may grant repentance, and they are caught in the snare of a devil, and they are held captive, and they are doing his will. And now in chapter 3, he opens with, But realize this, Timothy, in the last days difficult times will come. So what Paul's about to do here is set Timothy straight on the nature of the days in which Timothy ministered when you see the term last days he's referring to the days of the church the days of the church prior to christ's second coming last days does not necessarily refer to a very short period of time though obviously the longer this age lasts the less of the last days there are that's self-evident but you should hear the term last days as referring to the final period of history before the lord sets up his kingdom so timothy was in the last days We are in the last days. We're just a lot closer to the end of those days than he was, obviously. So in the last days, Paul says difficult times will come. Why do you think Paul wanted Timothy to know this about the future? I think it's because Timothy needed to understand that his situation in Ephesus, the one that he's so worried about, the one that might be cause for him to think twice about doing his job, well, it wasn't unexpected and it's not unprecedented. It's the norm. The Lord has revealed to Paul, as we see written here, that the times and the nature of the circumstances that Timothy had in Ephesus were the way the church is going to exist throughout its time on earth. This is nothing new. Young and often untrained men like Timothy would be required from time to time to stand firm, contending for the faith. They're going to have to deal with false and ungodly adversaries. So as bad as life may be for Timothy right now, And as hard as the work may be, he's not alone, and God wasn't surprised it was coming. So what that tells you is there can't be any time here for Timothy to engage in self-pity or to make excuses or to avoid persecution or to avoid confrontation as if he's in some special circumstance and he has to do something different than the average. Instead, Paul just tells Timothy, you need to set an example for the church. Teach and preach the truth of Scripture and do it unadulterated by foolish speculations or unafraid of confrontation. It's a hard message. Paul was telling Timothy that your success in ministry is going to depend on having a realistic expectation and knowing your enemy. That is, a man of God has to steer clear of traps and pitfalls that are set by the enemy, and in the last days, the world is going to be marked by extreme ungodliness. And so that means you have to be ready to take note of it, to avoid it, and to be aware of it. You need to understand that this idea, this very notion of a progression from bad to worse would have been news to people in Timothy's day. Because Paul is saying this, Paul's saying that the age of the church on earth is not a progression from lesser to greater godliness or from lesser to greater enlightenment. Certainly those who come to faith in Jesus Christ will see that happen in their own lives. They'll be sanctified by that relationship. But the world at large will not. The world at large is not going to get better during the time of the church. Rather, Paul says the condition of men on earth goes in the opposite direction during this period of time. Now, for those of us like you and I living 2,000 years after these things were written, and with the benefit of all that hindsight, nothing about this shocks us. It just seems like stating the obvious. You can see this fulfilled before your eyes. Just think back about how people have treated people over the last 2,000 years, and there's hardly anything newsworthy in what you're learning. You see the growth in evil, and particularly over the past centuries, for that matter, just in the last few decades, have we not seen clear evidence of a growth in the evil of society. It's happening almost daily now. But that's not how the early church perceived their future. The early church expected that the arrival of the Messiah and his manifestation to the earth, his, his revealing to the world, and now his church being set up, was a start of a Pax Christos, if you will. They were living in Pax Romana. That's a term that means the the worldwide peace that had been created out of Rome's power to conquer all enemies. So it's called Pax Romana, this extended period of history in which there was very little war because Rome basically kept everybody under control. With that backdrop, historically, they looked at the arrival of Christ into that setting and they thought, Pax Christos, we're going to have a worldwide peace instituted by Christ himself as manifested through the church. And therefore, if you imagine Timothy might have had some of those expectations, then it would be no mystery why he would have been disturbed by the arrival of persecution. It's apparently breaking the expectation of a church that increases in power and increases in peace. By the way, even today, there are those in the church who hold a certain view of eschatology that still maintains this same idea, that the world is destined to march toward greater holiness in preparation for the Lord's second coming. And so similarly those who would hold that view today are likely to find their faith in God's word shaken when their expectations aren't being met. So as the world descends deeper into ungodliness, people who have that worldview within the church are struggling to make sense of it. Because they had a wrong expectation, despite Paul's counsel. And therein lies one of the basic problems with having bad eschatology incorrect views of end times a wrong view of the bible's teaching an overrealized view of end times can undermine a believer's confidence in and interest in prophecy because the whole thing seems to be impenetrable or what they believe isn't showing itself in the world so now they don't know what to make of it they've been told one thing and the world teaches them something else and so they give up on the whole pursuit i've met people like that which is why paul tells Timothy, realize this the church needs to understand that the days of the church on the earth the last days are a period of difficult times. The Greek word for difficult can be translated fierce or harsh. So you have to understand we are as a church globally we're going to undergo harsh and difficult circumstances at the hands of ungodly people and persecution and difficulty etc is not proof that we're doing anything wrong quite the contrary it may be proof you're serving God well. It is the nature of the times. Now Paul goes into listing, to illustrate what he's saying, he goes into listing 19 vices that mark the nature of these days. Before we look at the list at all, I should preface that study by simply pointing out what I hope is obvious, which is there's nothing unique in the list. The human heart, since the time of Cain, has exhibited probably all of these traits to varying degrees at one time or another. That's not Paul's point. He's not saying these are unique. It's more in degree, that is to say, there's more of it, from more people that it's more characteristic of the last days than it would ever have been as a culture generally paul gives this list to timothy for at least a couple of reasons i would think first here's your proof that the world's not going to become more holy during the church age because every time you watch a news story about some episode of depraved indifference to human life which is a daily event now mothers killing their kids and god knows what else is going on every time you turn on the tv right or every time you You hear of some YouTube video of a reckless, boastful behavior having gone viral because everybody just cannot believe somebody would do something so crazy. Or as you watch our culture normalizing behaviors that used to be scandalous and worthy of condemnation, as you see those patterns happening, well, then your mind should immediately be drawn back to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy and Paul's words, and you begin to understand, we were told to expect this. And that's our message, as well as it was for Timothy, not to be discouraged. So his first reason, I think, is to demonstrate that what you're seeing in the world is not a sign that God's out of control or that he didn't plan things very well, as if the world's descent into ungodliness is reason to question any of those things. On the contrary, you need to recognize you were warned. Don't doubt the Lord. Don't doubt his promises. The Bible's been talking about this stuff for 2,000 years. We knew it was coming. Second reason I think Paul mentions this is he wanted Timothy and then us as well to understand that being forewarned is to be forearmed. Paul wanted Timothy to flee these things, he will say here, to protect the church, to protect the word, to be willing to suffer when his enemies try to silence him, knowing, in other words, that there is going to be pressure from the ungodliness of the world against godly believers and that that pressure is going to get worse. As the world gets worse and we hold to the truth, the gap grows and so the pressure against us will grow as well. Here again, the intent is to give Timothy reason and confidence to stand where he is, to hold the line, and not to grow fearful that because the world's getting worse, somehow we have to move in relationship to it. We stay where we are. The world's going to get worse around us. All right, with that background, let's look briefly at each item on the list. I don't know about you, but I've read this passage a number of times in different places at different times, and I think I knew what every word meant. turns out I didn't know what most of them meant. So study is well worth it. The list begins with lovers of self. The phrase literally means narcissism. I think it's appropriate that the list begins with this vice because I think it's become the defining characteristic of our time. Technologies like social media and the cell phone camera, selfies and the like, they just serve to give society's narcissism an easier outlet. But the instinct to love oneself has always been in humanity's heart. We're just seeing it on display a lot more often today in a lot more ways. And in a way, that one vice explains most of the rest of the list. And I'm going to use the term we here. Understand, I'm not talking about the church, not that we're immune from these things, but I'm talking about the world at large, humanity. So in our self-deception, we have been taught, and many have come to accept, that love of self is a virtue. We have changed the term slightly so it sounds a little bit better. We call it self-esteem. That's what we say today. It's the same idea. And so we say that raising kids with healthy self-esteem should be our goal. The Bible says that mankind has all the self-love or self-esteem that we need. In fact, the Bible calls it pride and says we have way too much of it. Ironically, when the world will not affirm someone's love for themselves, that will cause that person to pout or to rage or to get depressed or to work harder for that same attention. And then when they do those things, we call those bad behaviors bad self-esteem. When in reality, they're actually the consequences of someone realizing they weren't as lovable as they thought they were. They're the consequences of too much self-esteem. The Word of God says love of self is the mark of a sinful heart in the last days. The last thing, then, that anyone truly needs is more self-esteem. Instead, you need a lot less self-esteem and a lot more Christ-esteem. And that's a movement from unbelief into belief, fundamentally. But even as Christians, we need to guard ourselves against swallowing the lie that says you need to love yourself more and everything gets better. Fearing our sinfulness being brought before the presence of a holy God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that should counsel us against too much self-love. So Paul's going to use this term love a lot, actually. He uses it a number of times on the list, including with the next item. So after lovers of self, in the last days he says, mankind will be lovers of money. And that means being avaricious. Didn't know that was a word, did you? It is. Look it up. Avaricious. Having an insatiable appetite for money and what money may possess. So it's beyond being greedy. This sin also involves a dissipation of time as people spend countless hours earning all the money that they think they need to buy all the stuff they want. So it's a sin of consumption made possible by an investing of time and energy into selfish pursuits. So we have lovers of self. That leads us to lovers of money. Next, Paul says men in these days are boastful and arrogant. I'm combining those two for a moment because they are really two sides of a coin. Both these words are ways in which we display our pride to others. Being boastful means speaking pridefully about ourselves. Being arrogant means acting out in a prideful way. Both of them are outward displays of loving yourself. So there is a a sense of progression through this list, not perfectly in all cases, but in some sections it's very strong. Here's one where you see a little association. You go from being a lover of self to being someone who wants to love yourself through your possessions, and then you want to talk about it and act out on it. The progression of how that love of self moves to the world. The fifth and sixth items are revilers and disobedience to parents, and these two are related as well. Reviling, this is one of those I didn't really understand until I read it up, read up on it. Reviling is acting against proper authority, while disobedience to parents is acting against parental authority. The Greek word for disobedient can be translated unresponsive. So I want you to imagine a child sitting somewhere nearby, as a parent, gives an order to that child to go do something, and the child does not even acknowledge the parent's instructions, much less obeys. In the culture of Paul's day, that would have been the height of insubordination. That would have been worse than saying no. In fact, it was almost unimaginable that a child would respond to a parent's authority in that dismissive way, to not even acknowledge that something was said. And yet today, you know, many families know this experience of children ignoring their authority. And that's the highest form of rebellion as far as the Bible is concerned. Disobedience among children is so prevalent in our culture today that restaurants now will bar children after a certain time of day because they can't depend on the parents to take good care of them in the restaurant to make sure that they don't disobey around other people. Families, I know, decline to have fellowship with other families in the church even, because they know they can't expect their own children to behave and they're too embarrassed by their own children, so they decline invitations to be with anybody else if they can't find someone to watch their kids. We hear that all the time. And my wife and I, we, we try to reach out and have fellowship with people we know in ministry, one place or another, and there are people who just flat out decline because they know that our kids are kind of hard to deal with. And I'm looking at you like, you want you to just wear that on your shirt? Right? I mean, because you're talking about yourself, you're not talking about your kids. We're thrilled that they're nice enough to tell us in advance, by the way. We've had the other experience, and we're very happy to know in advance. Thank you. It's a mark of the last days. It's not normal. It's not just culture. It's an abuse of parental responsibility, and it's an indication of the depravity of the heart growing. Children will do whatever you tell them to do, if you make them. You outweigh them by ten times. The only reason they do anything is because you let them, period. I know it's easier said than done, but I raised two kids. I, I have a little experience. I know. Actually, that's not true. My wife raised two kids. I happen to. But I watched it. The seventh item is ungrateful, which means to carry an unthankful and unappreciative heart. You see that sinful attitude growing in the culture around us as well. Increasingly, our culture is unfazed by the conveniences and the blessings of modern life. And I'm just speaking in one narrow category for just a moment. But what satisfied us yesterday is not nearly good enough today. It's a sign of an unthankful heart. Imagine how grateful your ancestors would have been if you could have transported them forward in time for a moment and let them see what their future held for you and I, to let them see what's available to us today. Can you imagine how they would have thought about life if they could have even glimpsed it? I did a little research. In 1950, the size of the average American home was under a 1,000 square feet. It's about 900 and something square feet, average size of a home. Today, it's over 2,700 square feet. That's average for the American home. But are you happier than Americans of 1950? Has that changed our fundamental joy in life? Our houses may be bigger, but aren't you working harder to pay for them? That added expense causing a lot more stress? Two people working in every home now instead of what it was 1950, about 30% of people had two incomes? And then, of course, you've got to fill all that space with all the stuff you got to fill in the house. And then you got to pay for that and dust it and protect it and replace it. Right? It's a never-ending cycle. And then you get so much stuff, you've got to buy a storage unit. And then, you know, we laugh. but I'm not against having possessions, but we all understand what we're talking about here, right? There's a greed issue there. There's other issues there. But what the heart of it, it's an unthankfulness or an ungratefulness. Because having an ungrateful heart inevitably leads to avarice and greed. Which explains why that sin exists alongside the others in this list. We will always judge what we have against our greedy heart desires. Which leads to discontentment and ungratefulness. Every year's iPhone leaves me ungrateful for the one I have. I'm still going to get the new one, but I'm just telling you right now. It's wrong. I shouldn't do it. And in other walks of life, another person's success will leave us discontented with our own situation. We didn't know we didn't have a good situation until they did something to tell us. Oh, now look at me. I'm, I'm not having what I want anymore. All of a sudden, I'm discontented. The pursuit of more drives a sinful lifestyle, which leads us to the very next item on the list, which is people will be unholy. To be unholy means simply to be unlike God. That one term certainly could summarize the entire list. But in light of what's around it, I think Paul means this in a different sense. And this is one of those other ones that I caught on to. Because another way to look at the word in the Greek is impure, as in sexually impure. And I have a suspicion, based on what's before and what's after this on the list, that that's really what Paul was speaking about. Because unholy in a generic sense is just everything else on the list. He means people will be unholy in their bodies which should require no further explanation for us tonight. You understand what he's talking about. And impurity in our bodies leads to the next two items on the list in verse 3. Unloving and irreconcilable. The Greek word for unloving literally means to be heartless, to be without love, callous, in other words. To be without love in the true sense of the word love. So in this age, the last days, people are going to use their bodies in increasingly impure ways with one another. And yet, ironically, at the same time, they're going to show less true love for one another in the process. And when you see these two side by side in Paul's list, it makes perfect sense, right? Our culture is oversexed and unloving because sex is not love. In fact, it's the opposite of love when it's practiced in ungodly ways. And yet in these days, Paul says, the days we live in, Paul says, immorality will become the norm, and so people, therefore, will be unloving. And as you would expect, that kind of a a relationship won't last either, which is why we see irreconcilable as the very next thing on the list. Marriages based in selfish love will fail. Friendships that revolve around fornication will end without marriage. Other illegitimate sexual relationships will give rise to all kinds of other abuse. And this pattern just grows in the culture so that no one even knows anymore what's right or what's wrong or what's proper or what isn't. It's free love in the worst possible sense of the word. And so Paul says people won't be reconcilable. That word in Greek includes another side and includes the notion of unforgiving. So when you look beyond the immoral relationships we just talked about, you can see this quality in the culture everywhere. Unforgiving and unreconcilable. Because in our culture today, isn't it the thing now to be quick to be offended? And you have every reason to be offended and no reason to ever have to forgive anybody for anything or overlook any slight. It's the way we think now. This is definitely growing. We are definitely worse than you were 50 or 100 years ago. If you were thinking that's true, you're not wrong. Next comes malicious gossips. And a malicious gossip is someone who spreads false rumors for the purpose of hurting someone. In Paul's day, this usually involved... Men spreading rumors in the workplace or women gossiping house to house. That's the stereotype because that was the nature of life in that day. You can see other examples, though. You can see the Pharisees doing that against Jesus. You can see others in the church speaking against Paul. He mentions this in 2 Corinthians. So Paul says this behavior will be the way of ungodly people in the last days. But there's another little side to this. The Greek word for malicious gossip is diabolos, from which we get the devil. Diablo in Spanish who is the father of lies, which is why the term gossiping carries his name. It's an idea of starting lies. So that's the nature of malicious gossips. They're like the devil in that respect. And you can see in our day-to-day how this is being fulfilled. And I would add, in ever more powerful ways, the Internet and the anonymity and the speed of that modern communication tool, it has made malicious gossiping a way of life for people. We now have a new name for it even. We call it fake news whatever your view of it is that's the same idea the idea that i can spread something that's not true and make it stick because the communication method now the medium is the message as they say it's become more powerful than the message itself never before in history has it been so easy to do what paul said here would become typical for the age and so you can certainly see that this is a fulfillment of it and it's only going to get worse by the way if you think it's bad now just hold on to your seat it's not going to get better so this is another indication of paul's prophetic knowledge of where we were going looking down the list from there items 12 through 18 are so very closely aligned that we're going to look at all of them more or less as a group and you can see in these a cause and effect relationship that's building in this part of paul's list beginning with the lack of self-control then moving to brutal and then haters of good we'll start with those three to lack self-control means to lack the ability to restrain the evil nature of your flesh that part of you in other words because no one needs self control when it comes to acting in the spirit there's no such thing right the spirit naturally brings control self control is always a matter of controlling your sin nature in your flesh but in these days paul says humanity will stop trying or just never gain any control over their flesh they just they just give up on the fight it's not even worth it anymore no one even tries to act you know there's this, people say this all the time now you can't shame anybody anymore can you It used to be a politician caught doing something here or there. That was enough, the end of their career. Today, it has absolutely no effect on them. They just keep rolling, right? The point is, there's no concern anymore for self-control. When you take away any sense of self-control over the evil side of our flesh, what you're left with is everyone is like an animal in the sense that they're all living according to instinct at that point. So, Paul says, as a result of lacking self-control, people become brutal. The next item on the list And brutal, literally, this is one of those that caught me. Brutal literally means uncivilized. Uncivilized. So a world who lives increasingly without regard for societal norms, or even for the dignity of others, or their own bodies, well, they just become more uncivilized, more brutal in their life. It's a direct result of having no self-control. And even a casual look around the world would confirm for us that this is the progression we're watching around us, right? Brutality then would lead to people becoming haters of good. In this context, a hater of good is someone who is antagonistic toward anything that seeks to counter their brutality. So anything in life that convicts someone or suggests that they're acting in a way that's improper or, for that matter, prevents them from acting out to the full extent of their depravity, well, that thing will be attacked for stopping them. You see that today in some of the political movements of our culture where marriage is being attacked right it's it's not sufficient that people get to do what they want they want to attack those who would stand against them in their own walk such that they would put it away so that only their view is allowed to exist anymore it's this idea that we have to stop good around us for what it does is contrast with who we are so much like a wild animal kept in a cage they rage at the zookeeper and they bite at the bars and that pattern is so easy to see today you don't have to look very hard to find it, anyone or anything that dares to call out anything else as sin is going to be attacked. And that leads to verse 4, and the next item in this chain, items 15 and 16, that leads men to be treacherous and reckless. That first word was probably the one that I saw the most new insight in in this list, treacherous. It means seeking to betray or depose those in control. So naturally, as the world becomes more brutal, and as they hate anyone who would point out their brutality, haters of good, they seek to overturn the establishment. That's what we mean by treachery. Paul says in Romans that ruling authorities are in place for our good. But we just said the world hates good, therefore it's going to hate the establishment that wants to institute good. So once again, it's really easy to see how the world is desiring to rebel right now against authority. And to disrupt order. Anytime there's any opportunity now for a riot to break out and we can crash through windows and steal TVs, any opportunity at all, right? People rush to destroy what is already built. It's it's the nature of the times now that we've lost self-control, we're brutal, we hate good, and we also hate any institution that would tell us otherwise. That leads to reckless living. The word in Greek for reckless could be translated falling headlong. That's a literal translation of the word in Greek. It carries both the sense of jumping before you look and being stubborn about it. So as in the case of someone who'd been warned, don't jump off that cliff, you'll hurt yourself. That's all the more reason that they decide to jump anyway. That's the nature of what we're talking about here. And you can see a progression from treachery to recklessness very easily. Because as the world seeks to throw off the shackles of social norms and authority, they then begin to act in increasingly headstrong, reckless ways because all of those constraints have been removed. So they're not under any counsel. They're not under any authority. They live without any self-restraint or self-control. So if you want to know that I'm right on this one, browse through the list of the 100 most popular videos on YouTube. Well, you shouldn't, frankly. (laughs) But it will reveal a world of increasing recklessness. And in extreme cases, the world is so reckless now with its own life that you see people seeking to engage in these dangerous stunts. The more dangerous, the more they want to try it and get a video of it. This comes from hating good also, since it shows contempt for life itself and an opportunity to understand the meaning of life. They're not interested in those kinds of questions. They're trying to actually pursue a cheating of death. How close can I get to the line? And for an unbeliever to play with death, that's the absolute epitome of recklessness because they're risking an eternity in the lake of fire. Of course, they don't know that. But the point is, it's reckless in light of what is at stake. And Paul's saying that's the age we live in, recklessness now. That cause and effect chain goes a step further. It concludes in verse 4 with items 17, 18, and 19, which are conceited lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. Those are separate items. Lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. Those are the last three. So, going from where we just were, recklessness, to be conceited, it means to be proud, but it means to be proud in the sense of wrapping oneself in a veil of self-delusion. So such a person has supposed themselves to be someone other than they truly are, to imagine that they live a life of importance and substance. And conceit is a necessity in a narcissistic, reckless culture. Think about it. When you're narcissistic, and when you take on a reckless lifestyle... You have to compete with everybody else's narcissistic achievements while maintaining your own sense of self-worth. You jumped off that building, I've got to jump off something bigger. It feeds itself. And as social norms dissolve and forgiveness and reconciliation disappear, then there's no one to support us. We have to defend our own egos. So else we risk being run over and made irrelevant in a culture that loves only self. So it's a negative spiral of conceit. And conceit will lead to a society in which everyone is seeking personal pleasure at someone else's expense. From where we live, what we drive, what we eat, what we wear, what toys we possess, what hobbies fill our time. Our culture is obsessed with self-gratification. That's the natural outworking of all the other sin, which leads to uncontrolled selfishness. Because there's no constraints, there's no social norms, there's no judgment. Ultimately, the narcissism, the ungrateful hearts, the lack of self-control, brutality and conceit, they all add up to a failure to love God. They love themselves instead of God. The world has no regard for the love of God. But more than that, the world actually hates God, according to what Paul's saying. Love for the world and love for God are diametrically opposed. So they become lovers of pleasure... For themselves, in other words, not lovers of God. Of course, the unbelieving world has always been opposed to God. There's nothing new in that. But what's changed in the last days is a focused hatred in the world against Christ, specifically, who is the true manifestation of God. Prior to Christ, the unbelieving world opposed God. But that opposition was diffused. It lacked focus beyond just hating God's people, the Jews. But now the world has become aware of who the Messiah is. He's been revealed. So now the world knows who to hate. And have you noticed that in movies that use the name of Jesus Christ in vain, you'll never hear them use Muhammad's name in vain or Buddha's name in vain. You know, that's not a coincidence. And you notice how Christians are mocked on TV and movies are elsewhere, but rarely are other faiths mocked in the same way. Satan focuses the world's hatred on his one true enemy. The rest of it is subterfuge. And that too is a sign of the last days. So, true to form, our conceited world likes to think of itself as close to God, even though it hates God. So, in the last item on the list, item 19, in verse 5, Paul says, the world will hold to a form of godliness though they deny its power. They make a show of being religious because it feeds their conceited view of self-worth. They think themselves worthy of God's love in a conceited way. So, they like to think themselves religious. The Greek were there for form they hold to a form of godliness the word form literally means an outward form as in a show or a pretense there's no substance to their piety so today you would see this superficial form of godliness evident in those who like to label themselves as spiritual you ever heard this if you ask them ask a person are you christian or any other religion they'll say no because why Because they're distancing themselves from the authority, from the responsibility to answer to any authority in this culture that is treacherous, wants no authority. So instead, what do they do? They claim a superior status, a higher status of being spiritual. I've risen above the need for religious affiliation. I have a direct line. I'm spiritual. It's a direct analog to their human relationships because they want to have sexual relationships without the constraints or commitment or self-sacrifice of any kind of formal relationship, right? Similarly, they want to be able to describe themselves as having a one-to-one relationship with some deity, but without any of the constraints of authority or rules or form, etc. And Paul says there's no godliness at all. It fits the whole pattern of arrogant, boastful, depraved Society, Paul says they have a form that's just pretense, and yet at the same time, they deny the true power of God, which, of course, the true power is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. So that power, that being the power of His blood to save us from sin, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to teach us true godliness, that power they deny. And it's not just that they don't have it. They would reject it out of hand. They would say, that is definitely not what I'm about. For all their form of godliness the one form they categorically reject is faith in Jesus Christ. And so you'll find a lot of people in this state of thought will call themselves sometimes by other religions, something like a Buddhist or I'm into transcendental meditation or I'm into this or that, but the one thing they're never into is Christ. Very rarely would you find them being that way. They have nothing sincere in them. They have the form but not the substance. One of the reasons Paul's list is so memorable, so powerful for us, is because it's such a vivid portrayal of the effects of sin when left unchecked in the human heart. As the natural constraints that God has placed in the world against sin begin to erode, then sin abounds all the more. There's no limits. And God did put some limits on the heart. He gave mankind marriage, which is a constraint on the evil of our heart. He gave us government. He gave us societal norms. He even gave us our own conscience to contain our sin to a degree. And even in society, you have barriers like communication, like travel, like language. These things also work to constrain how far we can go with our sin. But as all of these barriers get eliminated, like the speed of communication, the speed of travel, the universality now of English is the world language, made so, by the way, by the Internet. Uh, As I travel, I've discovered this. There's cultures all over the world who desperately want to have access to what we take for granted on the Internet, and so much of it is in English. It's become a driving force to bring the world to a common language again. It's the language of business. It's the language of technology now and medicine, aviation, and in so many other fields now that if you want to have any career in these areas, you have to learn English. So we're back to a one-language world. It's the repeating of the Tower of Babel. Mankind, united by their sin nature, achieving ever greater heights of depravity, even as they go about declaring, we're just seeking to reach God. Seeking for a form of godliness, denying its power, and then meanwhile sin run amuck. At the end of verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, well, avoid such men as these, to which we would all say, no kidding. Sometimes, Paul says, Timothy was to engage with those who were causing trouble in the church. And in other times now, he's saying, avoid such men as these. It's an interesting counter to his earlier call. And here's the difference. The difference is a matter of the heart. In the first case in chapter 2, Paul says to engage with those who were spreading foolish talk, useless, foolish speculation, because they're in the trap of the enemy. They're believers, entrapped by the enemy to do his will, and perhaps they might be rescued from that entrapment if God should permit. So go after them and see what you get out of it. Just don't engage with them in that useless speculation, Paul said. In this case, though, in chapter 3, we're not talking about believers anymore. This is a list of what the unbelieving world would be like, and unbelievers are those who stand in the way of the church. They are our mission field, yes, but before they convert, they are opposed to the mission. These men, those that Paul lists here, will be the source of persecution in the church. Notice he says, difficult times will come upon the church. So in general, Timothy is to avoid these men because these are the men propagating those difficult times on the church. Perhaps they may be reached by the gospel, that's in God's hands, but in the meantime, Timothy was to use discretion and wisdom and to avoid them. What what you see Paul doing here is coaching Timothy on the balance between reaching the culture while remaining apart from the culture. Like a shepherd leads his flock into pastures, but he has to keep them away from wolves. So you have to understand the threats even as you face them so that you're not letting them have a free chance at the flock in the meantime. Jesus expressed it as being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The idea being never give anybody cause for accusation, never sin, but yet be smart in how you handle yourself knowing you're operating behind enemy lines when you're down here working for the Lord. So Paul's trying to give Timothy wisdom on how to defeat those enemies even as he's ordering them forward into battle. And that leads us now into more examples from Timothy's past experience. Verse 6, he says, For among them are those who enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all just as janice's and jamber's folly was also among those in the world who fit this pattern of sin the guys we just described here in the first part of chapter three among them there will be those who he says enter into households to captivate weak women and that's such an intriguing statement and some would see it as a i guess misogynistic even in today's terms but he's describing a pattern that still has application today it's a pattern in the time of timothy and ephesus though i doubt anything that happened in ephesus was unique in ephesus i'm pretty sure this was a pattern anywhere and you can still see this pattern today if you know what to look for in general paul's describing this he's describing what can happen in the church when unbelievers pose as religious experts so as to get close to the church and to go in and then spread false teaching within the body. To be clear, we're talking about unbelievers. Notice Paul begins with, for among them, which is a reference back to the people in the list above, clearly a group of people who hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. That's a definition of an unbeliever. So among the unbelievers he's talking about then, are those who follow this interesting pattern. Men who portray themselves as ministers of God, in some way, some form, and then work their way into the fold. That's why Paul has told Timothy, avoid these men. And he tells them that because there is a risk to the weak within the church if these people are allowed to get too close. And he calls out weak women at home, weighed down by sin. Now, he's speaking about a situation in his culture that would be a little different today, at least to some degree, but not entirely, and there is a principle that certainly does apply here. Let's look at it in pieces. First, you have a captive audience. In Paul's day, women were found mostly in the home, working in the home. False teachers would come to the home during the daytime while the men were away. They're in the fields. So you have women by themselves with the kids. The perfect opportunity to captivate them, to come in with with false teaching, portraying yourself as a pious individual with religious knowledge. And you impress them with your words. And they think this is cool and interesting and they want to know more. And the ones in particular that caught interest with these guys would be the ones who were spiritually immature. And Paul adds, living unsanctified lives. And that's typical among spiritually immature Christians. They're beset with sin. Why? Because they're not growing in the word. Because they're immature. They haven't begun to move out of the sin of their lives. So they're suffering under the weight of all the consequences of their sin. Their life is bad. It has troubles. They have history. They've got guilt. They've got worries. They're at home. Their hands are ringing over their life. And then someone walks in and says they have a solution for their problems. And that Christian will seek relief, but they seek it in the wrong way. They find their answers in the wrong place. Their immaturity leaves them vulnerable to receiving false teaching. You may remember in our first Timothy study a few weeks ago, we learned that false teaching in Ephesus was being promoted largely by women in the church, which is why Paul told them they couldn't teach. Now you're seeing how those women were deceived. They were won over by crafty false teachers while they were at home without the protection of their husbands, who perhaps may have been of help to them in this case. Interestingly, though, this same pattern repeats itself today, though not necessarily limited to women, of course. Today, it's the Internet or television that brings a myriad of false teaching into the home. And those teachers find in those homes people who should have been at church, but are sitting at home watching TV instead, perhaps, or just at some other day of the week. And they're a ready audience of weak Christians who are seeking solutions to life's problems and worries, when the real solution is only found in God's word under the proper instruction of a church that's doing its job, instead they find men selling snake oil and they just send them their money and they get their prayer cloth and their manna and whatever else they're told they couldn't get. And they're going to be better off. Paul says immature Christians, whether women or otherwise, are led into this pattern, he says, by various impulses. The word in Greek for impulse is lust. So we don't know what the lusts were that dominated the women of Paul's day, but I doubt they were all that different. From what we have today, people are people. And what you see today are people seeking to be healed, to be rich, or to experience some miraculous encounter with God. Because it's not enough to know Him in His Word. I need something right here in front of me. And so they succumb to any false teaching that offers them what they lust after. And Paul says they're always learning. He's speaking here about the deceived, whether man or woman. He says they're always learning, but they're never able to come to true knowledge. That's a pattern you see today. A lot, actually. A Christian who's always enamored with the latest fad. They always have the latest book. They always have the latest movie they just seen and they want to tell you about. They always have some particular new teaching that's out there. The, the prayer of Jabez. The, the secret this or that. And it's whatever that thing is. Woo, that's the secret. Now we've got our hand on the thing that's going to really make life better. Suddenly a breakthrough for them. And then it just fades and then they float to the next fad. That's the idea of always learning something. That's not a compliment. They're always learning something, but they're not actually ever growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not mocking these people so much as I'm just painting the picture for you because you've seen it, I know you've seen it, you've maybe even been around it, and it's always indicative of weakness in your spiritual walk that these things captivate in place of the tried and true boring Bible, as some would say. That's my grandfather's religion. I'm looking for the new thing. That's a sign of weakness, of spiritual immaturity. And that's the danger for a church if the pastor does not keep the flock distant from those kinds of threats. It's like a a shepherd taking his flock out and the wolves are just picking off the stray sheep on the edge of the flock. If Timothy's going to hold the line in Ephesus, he has to contend with these false teachers who are undermining the mission. He can't shrink back. And in verses 8 and 9, last piece for the night, Paul cites an example. This example is from Moses' experience in Pharaoh's court. You may remember in Exodus 7, Moses, when he first comes to Pharaoh... He is to demonstrate the power of God through his staff. Throw the staff on the ground, it becomes a serpent. And as he does that, he's opposed by two of Pharaoh's magicians, the two men mentioned here in the text, who perform a very similar stunt, in a sense, not a true miracle. Moses' staff turning to the snake was a miracle. They probably used something like a sleight of hand, something where it's a trick. In any case, what they did in trying to equal what Moses did, is a perfect representation of how false teachers work in general, in these ways. First, they gain an audience because a true work of God is already taking place around them. False teachers rarely start their own religious movements. They almost always hijack what the church is already doing. I mean, Mormonism is a great example. Mormonism begins with a story about a man they call Jesus, although he's not the Jesus of the Bible, But they make it appear as if they are the real Christianity. They're hijacking a truth and turning it into something of their own. Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. And so just as the two magicians that Paul names here, they tried to hijack Moses' appearance. You take Moses out of the story, those two guys have no reason to be there with their stick. I mean, they have no reason to do what they did. Their whole basis for an audience was to feed off of what God was already doing around them. And that's what false teachers always do. Secondly, they sought to diminish the work of God... By making it appear to be nothing more than the work of men, something that they claim to have the power to equal in their own abilities. Moses said, God did this. This is a proof that I'm from God. And the magician said, no, it's not. We can do this ourselves. And that's typically what false teachers are doing, whether they say it that way or not. They speak of God, but they really put the spotlight on themselves. Or to some extent, on their audience, they say all the power that you want is within your grasp. If only you follow my little recipe, which always includes sending me some money. Right? It's always in there somewhere. That's part of them diminishing the work of God into just something we can do on our own. Let's just work this out. I'll tell you how it's done. Finally, the end effect of the magicians was to oppose the truth. The magicians were seeking to discredit Moses and his testimony. Likewise, false teachers in the church seek to move our minds off the gospel, off the true message of scripture, and on to meaningless things like prosperity or whatever else they dream up. Paul says those men have opposed the truth. He says they do it because they have depraved minds. And then notice at the end there, he says they've been rejected in regard to the faith. Paul's saying that they have been rejected by God in regard to saving faith. It's a strong declaration that lines up with what Jude says about the very same group of people. Jude says this in Jude 4. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude said these false teachers are marked out for condemnation by God beforehand. Predestined, in other words. And Paul says the same thing here. They were rejected in regard to faith. God rejected them. They didn't reject the faith. God rejected them. He he pushed them aside. Clearly, they are not candidates for rehabilitation. And that's what Jude concludes as well. And so that means Timothy and the church needs to avoid them. They're not the mission. They're the enemy. To end our teaching tonight, notice Paul says, the good guys win. Verse 9, Paul says, Just as the magicians saw their snakes eaten alive by God's snake, so will the false teachers and their attempts to undermine the church fail as well. That's Paul's encouragement to everybody. Moses was probably afraid of what he faced when he went into that court. It's the court of the most powerful man on earth in his day, Pharaoh. Nevertheless, what did he do? Just what God told him to do. He stood firm. The truth was vindicated in the end by God's power. And that's really the message here to Timothy and to anyone in this situation. You have good cause to stand firm against opposition because you're not alone in this. God knew the difficult times would come. It's not a shock, not a surprise. The men of the days we live in are evil. But that's why the church exists, to proclaim light into that darkness. In the end, the Lord wins by his word. And we go in with that confidence. Heavenly Father. Father, as we concern ourselves with that list, I pray, Father, that each of us would be convicted as we should be against anything we may find in our life today that resembles that list. We know, Father, that list was speaking of those who had no faith, but all the more reason, Father, for us not to share in any of those behaviors. And as they do happen to encroach into our walk, Father, and you show them to us, Father, give us the power to step step aside from them. And as we meet others in this world, Father, who we wish to influence when we find those who we can see are living in such an ungodly way that their, their heart is so distant from you that they pose more a threat than an opportunity. Give us the wisdom, Father, to know those people and to step aside as well. Father, we pray we'd have the chance to finish this study as we started, full of energy and full of expectations so that we can see what your word would have for us. Bring us back in the last two weeks. Let us finish as you appoint, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.